Ephesians chapter 2. So today we're talking about another hot topic, and this hot topic, uh, this one is called racism. And some of you might not think that this is a big deal, but I guarantee you, I promise you, this is a serious issue, even still today in our day and age. So some of us are um, taken aback. When, when we see news stories suddenly pop up, like last summer, if you remember Charlottesville, and these stories pop up out of nowhere, and it seems like, what is going on? I, I, like when I saw that, I immediately thought, there's still people like this around the country? I didn't know that. Like, and, and as part of the fact is that I'm ignorant, <laughs> and I don't know what other people have experienced. And I think that if, if there's people here today, and you think, that racism isn't a problem, it's because you're a white person. And I'm just being honest, and I can say that with authority because I'm a white person. <laughs> and, I, and I don't see it, but I, I think that here's the problem. I've got a can up here, and I wanna get the camera on it. There we go. I, I want you to look at this can, and I want you to say to me, what, what do you guys see up on the screen? Give us the screenshot here uh, of this. There we go. What do you guys see? Say what you see. I don't see that. From my angle, I don't see that. I see shake well before opening. <laughs> I also see that this can has 70 calories, zero calories from fat. That's good news. It's got zero cholesterol. It's got zero saturated fat. This is good. Oh, but it's got 920 milligrams of salt. That's 40% of your daily intake. If you're treating this as a vegetable substitute, prepare yourself for high blood pressure. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Here's the point that I want to make. You see something from this side. I see something from that side. And I think that's how we approach racism. We just see one issue from totally different sides of the issue. And here's what, here's what we need to start doing as the church of Jesus. If you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're not a Christian, you can try to handle this issue outside of the boundaries of the scriptures. But for the scripture's sake, here's what I think we need to do. I think we need to walk around to the other person's side and see it from their point of view. Can I get a good amen for that? I'm preaching now, and I'm only like three minutes in. Come on, somebody. We need to do this. We need to do this because this is the ministry of Jesus. He loved the unloved. He reached out to the foreigner, the stranger, and the alien, and he was hated for it. And if we're going to claim allegiance to him, we better do some of the stuff he did. Amen. But I don't want us just to walk around the other side and see it from other people's point of view, because that can only go so far. Today, I want us to actually have this kind of view. I want us to have a God's eye view of this issue. That's what this message is. And that's why we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2 and find it. But before we get there, I want to give you the name of the message. The name of the message is 23 and we. <laughs> 23 and we. Have you guys seen this new craze to find out who you are? Ancestry.com, 23andWe, 23andMe, all these other products out there to, to 
to find out who you are. I'm kind of humored by this because on one hand, we complain that our privacy is being violated by Facebook and Google and they're collecting all kinds of information on us. And you all know this, right? You've read Revelation. This is the mark of the beast. It's coming down the pike. Here it comes, mark of the beast. All this private information that I'm just getting stolen from me. And we're complaining on one end. And on the other hand, we're taking saliva, spitting it into a tube and sending it off to a company. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, what is this? And I think that all of this craze to find out who we are is the, is the fruit of a deeper problem. That we have lost the ability to identify ourselves as God sees us. See, I don't need to do 23andMe. I'm not sending my spit to anybody. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm from because the scriptures tell me where I'm from. Now, you have a choice. You can either take the words of a guy from the 19th century named Charles Darwin who told you you're from monkeys, or you can take the words of a Middle Eastern man from 2000 BC and trust that he was a little bit closer to the events as they transpired, and so he might have something to say about where you come from. Are you following me? The scriptures open with, this is where you're from. That's why I love the Bible. The Bible's always telling us who we are, what's wrong with us, what we need, and how we can change. And right there on the first page, we know where we're from. So, so let, me, let, me, let me tell you where we're from. Uh, Paul talks about this in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and he describes the beginning of the Bible like this. He says, from one man he, God, created all the nations throughout the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall, and he determined their boundaries. In other words, you are where you are because of God's directive. And we all come from one dad. His name was Adam. See, it's easy to be racist when we teach our children that they come from monkeys and apes. Because all that happened is one fish flopped up onto the ground and grew legs on one continent. Another fish flopped up onto the ground and grew legs on another continent. And now there's reason, there's genetic reason to say, see, you're different than me and you're not as valuable than, as me. And so on one hand, we tell people they're descendant from apes. And on the other hand, we tell them, hey, try to respect everybody. And it doesn't work. We need to see the way God sees us. Here's what God sees. He sees one big, colorful family, and he's up in heaven saying, can you please just get along and love one another? You're all mine. We're all from Adam. My brothers and my sisters are of different colors, shapes, sizes, distinctive features. They're my brothers and my sisters. We're just ancient descendants of one another. And so we got a shared father and Adam, and then we've got a shared father and another guy. Anybody know his name? Noah. The Bible tells us that God wiped out the whole world, and he saved one man and his family. His name was Noah. And God saves Noah from the flood and says the same thing to Noah that he said to Adam Adam in the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 9, it says, God blessed Noah and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's exactly what happened. 
All the descendants from Noah start to multiply. They fill the earth and they spread out through all the land of the earth. And then they become corrupt again because this is what we do because we're broken, we're fallen. There's sin inside of us. It's inherited from our parents who got it from their parents, who got it from their parents, who got it all the way back to Adam, all the way back to Noah. And so there's a problem and we need help and we need salvation. And so God planned thousands of years before you and I were here to save the world, to save all the families of the world through one family. And he finds a guy named Abraham and he says, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. He's talking about the people of Israel. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, God says, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel, Abraham's children, was called by God to bless the nations with God's good word. But they didn't do it. And they failed and they turned in on their own blessings. And they started to just love their chosenness rather than the people that they were called to minister to outside of their family. And so 2,000 years ago, God sends his only son through a Jewish virgin named Mary, a descendant of Abraham. And, it, and Jesus does what Israel failed to do. Jesus loves the nations. He ministers to the people who were unlike the Jews. And if you read the Gospels, this is why they killed Jesus. Because they, they didn't like the fact that he hung out with people like Matthew who worked for the Romans. They didn't like the fact that he, he hung out with Samaritans who were half-breed Jews. They didn't like the fact that he healed the centurion's ser servant, the centurion who worked for the Romans. They didn't like the fact that he reached out to the people who were nothing like the Jews, and he broke that, that mold. He broke open the doors of God's love to different kinds of people to fulfill what God called Abraham to do, to be a blessing to the nations. And here's the thing. When Jesus dies and sheds his blood for all of man, Mankind, he fulfills the promise of God to Abraham that through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, and through his death on the cross, every nation can come straight back to the God who created them by grace, through faith in Jesus' name. That's the gospel. And so then you have the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, and John is caught up into the heavens, and he sees the nations. He sees it from God's perspective, and he looks down, and it says this in Revelation chapter 5. This is the end of the Bible. And he sees a whole group of people from every tribe, tongue, and language, and they're all singing one song. And here's the words of the song. Here's what we're going to be singing in heaven. He says, worthy are you to take the scroll, Jesus, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God's family is people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, worshiping one name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. That's where we're headed. If you don't like multiculturalism, don't go to heaven. You're going to be miserable up there. 
Because that's where we're headed. And it's a beautiful picture, amen? It's a beautiful picture. But here's the question, and here's what we wrestle with. How do we get there? How do we get there? Because that's the struggle. The struggle is that we build walls so easily. And, and we separate so easily. Many years in this country, segregation was preached from the pulpits of the churches. In many respects across this country, some people still say that the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. Black churches, white churches, Asian churches, Hispanic churches. And then I, I hear stories about how, and you probably hear this from the political left, they love to say this, White Christian America is dying. Have you heard this? Anybody heard this? White Christian America is dying. I got some nods. Some of you are too scared to nod. Okay, don't worry. I'm going somewhere with this. I've been a white Christian American my whole life. Let me tell you something about white Christian America. It was never alive. <laughs> they ain't alive, man. We need some people from different nationalities to come and wake us up and learn how to praise Jesus with some vocal cords and some dancing. Can I get a witness from anybody? It's beautiful to see that happen. Thank God. Let white Christian America die and watch ethnic, uh, multicultural Christianity rise up in its place and tell the world that though we are many and though we are different, we are one in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the roadmap, Ephesians chapter 2. So, so open your Bibles there. I'm going to just start reading and then we'll unpack it as we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, to some Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember. Somebody say, remember. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, and by the way, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, he says, this is verse 11, that you were Vilified. You were called names by the circumcision. Okay? And he says, remember that. But then he says this little phrase in verse 11, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, there was a group of people, they're called the Jews, and this isn't Paul's day, all right? This is not related in many, in many respects to the Jews of today. But there's a people called the Jews, and they had this practice. It was given to Abraham, and it passed down through the ages, and it was the circumcision of their sons, and they would circumcise them. And then they let that little sign of circumcision become a bragging right, a boasting right. And then they would look down on you and say, oh, the uncircumcision, oh, the uncircumcision. But Paul says, but Paul says, don't you understand? That's just made in the flesh by hands. That's just something people chose to brag about. When anybody becomes a racist, don't you understand? They're just bragging about something that's in their flesh. They're just bragging about something that, that's just physical. It doesn't matter. It's not a bragging point. It has nothing to do with being better or worse. And then in verse 12, he says, can we put verse 12 up on the screen, please? Verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, this is who you were, Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians. 
some words here that are important. You were alienated. You, you were an alien. You were an outsider. He says you were a stranger to the covenants of promise. What God promised Abraham didn't apply to you. The law of God, which helps you live stronger, didn't apply to you. And then you were outside the commonwealth of Israel. You didn't have rights to come to God. And so here's the important lesson for every Christian. Here's what Paul is saying. Number one in your notes. Before Christ, I was an alien to the people of God. And Paul says, please remember this. Why? Because it's so important to remember where you come from so that you treat people who are not like you the way that God treated you when you were nothing like him. That was good preaching right there, and I don't know if you caught it. You need to remember that you were an outsider. It's hard to be an outsider, amen? I mean, it stinks. You remember when you were in middle school, and the first day of middle school, that's got to be one of the scariest days of, the, of your life. My worst memories come from lunchtime on the first day of school in middle school. Come on, somebody. You go get your food, you got your tray, it's all stacked up, and then you go out to the tables, and the panic sets in. Where do I sit? How many of you did like me? You went to the social misfits first. That's what I did, because I said, maybe I can work from the bottom up. Amen, somebody. <laughs> it didn't work. I just stayed at the bottom my whole life. <laughs> That's how God prepared me to be a minister. Amen. All right. It's hard to be labeled. It's hard to be outsiders. I, I remember, it's one of, the, one of the few memories that I have from my preteen years. In the 1980s, the big rage was mixtape making. How many remember making mixtapes? Okay. Well, you would have to go to Radio Shack, and you would have to buy blank cassettes. And... Uh, I remember I was all into this. Now, in the 80s, you would make mixtapes for your significant other. This is how we would flirt with each other. We would make a mixtape for the girl we liked, give it to her, and it would have all kinds of love songs to display our love. Well, I was from the social misfit table. I didn't have a girlfriend. I made mixtapes for myself. <laughs> Pray for me. So I, I was, uh, it was winter, and I had a big coat on, and I walked into Radio Shack, and I went over to the way in the back of the store where the, where the blank cassettes were, and I remember I was just shuffling through, and I didn't find one that I liked, so I started to walk out the store, and the manager stopped me, and he said, did you take something from this store? And I said, no. And he said, I don't believe you. He said, do you mind if I check your coat? I said, okay. I'm like 10 years old. I'm like freaking out. And they literally patted down my coat, and they checked all my pockets. I'm telling you, man, that was humiliating. They didn't find anything. I felt like such an outsider. I felt like so judged, so biased against. It was the only time in my life this has ever happened. I went down the hall in the mall back down to my mother and she could see my face was white she said what happened to you and I told her I thank God for a godly mother she took me by the hand and she marched back <laughs> <laughs> to Radio Shack 
she walked into that store and she laid into that manager with words from Sinai that I was like, hallelujah, praise you, Jesus. Get him, mom. Get him. Get him. I'm telling you, thank God that somebody stood up for me. Shame and humiliation brought back to vindication and justification. And here's what Paul is saying to Gentiles. Don't you know that that's who you were? You were vilified. You were ostracized. But because somebody stood up for you in heaven, his name is Jesus, you are now part of the eternal people of God. That's who you are. You've got to have this in you. This is what he says in verse 13. He says, but now you were ostracized. You were alienated. You were straight. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You got to remember this so that you learn how to treat people right. And then he says, he himself is our peace. And it says, he has made us both one. Jew and Gentile, one, by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, and you're like, I thought you were talking about racism. Okay, let me, let me get somewhere with you for a second. Jews and Gentiles, if you're taking notes, write it down, is the oldest ethnic hostility in the history of the world. And I can be, because I know my history, I can be so bold as to say, the black-white issue has got nothing on the Jew-Gentile issue, historically speaking. I know we're all Americans. I know that we all come from a certain subset of, of history, but over the course of thousands of years of history, okay, Jews and Gentiles, it's been bad. It goes all the way back to the Philistines who hated Isaac and filled in Abraham's wells. That's, that's, the, that's like foreclosing on all of his accounts and sending him out of town. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 26. It goes back to Egypt with Pharaoh who enslaves them. Egypt, Gentiles, enslaving the Jews. They get delivered, but they're still persecuted by all the nations in Canaan. And, it, and the hostility just goes on from there. Jew, Gentile. Jews versus the Philistines, Jews versus the Babylonians, Jews versus the Persians, Jews versus the Greeks, Jews versus the Romans in Jesus' day. Jew and Gentile, hatred, back and forth, back and forth. When Jesus comes, I said it already, but this is what upsets the Jews most, that Jesus keeps loving the Gentiles, the outsiders, the people who aren't ethnically Jewish. And you would think that after Jesus, the hostility would end. No, it's still alive, still to this day. It goes through the Catholic Church. It goes through the reformers of the 1500s. Protestants and Catholics have both in their history harbored anti-Semitism. And it goes all the way to modern day now. Or, or the last century with the Holocaust. Who was, who was Hitler trying to wipe off the face of the earth? The Jews. And it goes in still today. The Muslims, in many respects, harbor a lot of ill will. By the way, the word Palestinian is the same word we get Philistine from. That old ancient hostility is still alive still today. The United Nations, which claims to be a fair and just organization, every year they pass resolutions decrying human rights violations against certain countries. Do you know out of the 93, uh, out of the last 93 resolutions passed by the United Nations, 86 of them were passed against the nation of Israel. 
There's one nation that keeps getting hated by all the other nations, Jew and Gentile. I'm trying to give you some framework. I'm trying to give you some context to understand that there was an ancient hostility between Jew and Gentile that no other ethnic hostility can even come close to matching. And you say, well, what does this have to do with us today, Pastor Tim? Here's what it has to do with. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is saying that ancient old hostility has been put to death once and for all through the blood of Jesus Christ. That if you're a Jew and you're in Christ and you're a Gentile and you're in Christ, you are no longer Jew and Gentile. You are now one in Jesus. And I'm trying to tell you this, that if God can demolish the most ancient, longest standing ethnic hostility through the family of the living God in Christ Jesus, his son, there's no other ethnic hostility that can stand a chance against the power of the blood of Jesus. We come together, not because of better politicians, not because of better rules or better education. We come together because we know Jesus. And his blood cleanses all of us from our sins, including the sin of racism and prejudice. Number two, in your notes, the blood of Jesus destroys man-made walls of divisions. We love to build walls. We, we love to create bound, uh, barriers between us and people who are different than us. And Paul says, not anymore, Christian. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Can we just make a note of something right here? If you don't have peace with God, you will never have peace with other people. He is your peace. Before you can be at peace, you need peace. And he's peace for you. And he breaks down in his wall, the dividing wall of hostility. And how did he do it? Verse 15, look at it. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a mouthful. <laughs> let, me let me explain what Paul is saying. He abolishes the law, not the whole law, the moral law. He abolishes the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. If you got your notes out, underline expressed in ordinances because he's talking about the ceremonial law, the ordinances of the Old Testament, if you will. The sacrifices, the sheep, the goats, the pigeons that they would have to break in half and spill the blood over another pigeon to make purification for a leper. And then all of the laws concerning their diet and all the laws concerning their clothing and all the laws concerning what they could touch and what they couldn't touch to be God's clean people. And, and, and some of you say, why are those laws in the Old Testament, Pastor? Here's why those laws are there. Those laws are to do two things. Number one, to make sure that Israel stayed distinct from the rest of the nation so that all the other nations would come to them for the word of God. But secondly, they were all there so that they would point to the one who would fulfill the law, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true lamb who was slain for the, for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the true high priest sent from heaven to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament ceremonial ordinances, laws. And so once Jesus comes, all those ordinances and Old Testament sacrifices are now finally and once and for all abolished because the final perfect sacrifice has been made in Jesus. 
And now we don't have to come to church with goats anymore. Aren't you glad about that? I know your SUV is glad about that. I mean, wouldn't it be a bummer to have to bring some pigeons with you to church? It'd be white stuff all over the floor. It'd be miserable, and I ain't into killing animals, amen? And it's like, well, we come into church, and we come straight to God because all those sacrifices were pointing to the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and in his flesh, he abolished those sacrifices because it was done once and for all. And you come to Christ, black, white, yellow, red, the same way I come to Christ, through the red blood that was shed on that cross. Amen. Verse 16. Look at this, because this is important too. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul mentions another kind of hostility here. This hostility is not the hostility between nations and ethnicities. This hostility is the hostility between us and God. There's two hostilities we are all born with. There are two hostilities we are all born with. The first hostility is very apparent, very visible, the hostility between me and somebody who's different than me. The second hostility, a little bit harder to see, and some of us actually don't think we have the hostility, but here's the hostility. The hostility between us and God. There is hostility between you and God. Outside of Christ, listen, there's hostility between you and God. Why are some of the people that you try to tell about Jesus so angry when you mention his name? Why is Jesus Christ still the name that is used as a swear word? When people get really mad, nobody says, oh, Muhammad. <laughs> no one says it. No one burns their finger on the oven and says, Buddha. <laughs> well, well, why Jesus Christ? Why? It's betraying the reality of the human heart. That he is the fulfillment. He is the only son of the living God. He is God in the flesh. And that hostility in our hearts uses him as a derogatory term to betraying the reality that we are all born hostile to the living God. And if you're hostile to the God who made you, you better believe that that hostility is going to flow through you to other people. And this is why some people, without Christ, they can't get along with anybody. And they harbor ill will against certain kinds of people. And they can't forgive, and they can't let go, and they harbor, harbor, harbor because of things that happened even before they were born. And it's really bad because it doesn't change with better laws and better politicians. There's only one man who can change. It's Jesus. He comes in the cross, and he dies for his enemies. Do you understand? That's who we were before Jesus. We were enemies with God, and our enemy in heaven came down to earth and bore our sins and died in our place and took our sins into the grave and rose again for our justification. And now he comes, and he says, peace. The war between you and God is over. This is why he says in the very next passage, verse 17, he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is just good theology right here, friends. I got news for you. Once the work of the cross was over, Jesus could now start saying peace. Peace between you and God. You don't have to run from him anymore. He loves you. You don't have to, you don't have to 
feel like he's out to get you. He has given you an eternal sign in human history pointing backward and forward that he loved you before you loved him. That while we were still his enemies, Christ died for our sins. And now the word for us from heaven is not do better, <laughs> try harder, be more religious. The word from heaven is peace. Peace between you and your father. Verse 18, that's exactly what he says next. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the father. I call this message 23 and we because here's the deal. We all got two natural dads. But in Christ, we get that third heavenly father. 23, and we. Aren't I a clever preacher? Come on, somebody. I worked all week on that. I was expecting a better response, but that's, uh, that's all right. Not, not too late, too late. Stop it. <laughs> Number three, and finally. In Christ, my identity, development, and priority are experienced in the unity of his church. My identity, my development and my priorities are experienced in the unity of his church. This is a long point. So I got three points to unpack this last point. <laughs> and they're quick. Number one, my identity. My primary identity once I'm in Christ is I'm a member of God's family. I'm a brother and sister with the multicultural family of the living God. That's who I am. You want to know who I am? That's who I am. I know who I am. I know I'm loved by God for the Bible tells me so. And I know who I am. I don't need to find out where my ancestors are from. I'm sure it was bad news. <laughs> I got a new ancestry. It goes all the way back to Jesus. It goes all the way back through David. It goes all the way back through Abraham and Noah and Adam. And it brings me back to my father in heaven. Amen. That's my identity. Number two. My development. My development occurs in the diverse community of God. Okay, can you just look at something with me real quick? I'm going through this text verse by verse on purpose because there's so much here. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, that's the church, look at these next four words. Being joined together grows. Can we say those four words together? One, two, three. Being joined together. Oh, say it like you mean it. Being joined together. Notice that Paul is deliberate here, and he puts joined together before he puts grows. A lot of people want to grow in Christ, but they don't realize that growth in Christ happens once you join together. And he's been talking about Jew and Gentile joining together in one. The ancient hostility, the thousands-year-old hostility over in Christ. So come together because you've got things to offer one another that will cause both of you to start growing. Here's what I thought about. One of the best things that we can do as a church, one of the best things we can do as a Christian, have people over to your house who don't look anything like you. Are all your friends the same shade? We're going to be the church. This is what we got to do. We got to start growing together. But we only grow together once we're joined together. I love the fact that there's some many, many multicultural small groups in our church. 
And I've heard the stories, how they're talking about it from the different sides of the can. Already, they're starting to talk about it from the different sides of the can. And because they have the peace of God in Christ Jesus, they can start looking at people better because the peace of God is in them and they're growing together. That's how we develop. That's how we grow. That's how we tell the world there's a better way to make this happen. Number three, and finally, my priority is this, the unity of God reflected in the Trinity. Because I thought about the fact that in the passage here, it says, in him, Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, that's the Father, by the Spirit. Christ the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, all in one verse. And I thought about how the unity of the church is actually intended to declare the unity of the Godhead. And the more unified we come together as a church and the more we get over our little differences and we come together and we start to get to know each other and we start to grow together, we actually tell the world more about the Father. And they see the beauty of our God because they see the beauty of our community. And our community is beautiful because of the blood of Jesus.